Today's reading is from the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. Please rise for the reading of God's word. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am in present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that we say by letter, when absent, we do when present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labor of others. But our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may greatly be enlarged. So that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. This is God's word. Amen. Well, good morning, Westgate. It's good to be with you again. You're stuck with me again, as Bruce is away and our brother Travis is still recovering. But you'll notice we're still putting him to work. He will be leading the communion later. We're looking forward to that. Let me pray as we get started. God, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Isaiah says, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. That is true of Isaiah, and it's true of Paul's letters here to the Corinthians. 
We ask that this word that does stand would be useful for us as we seek to live how you want us to live here in Metro West. May my words be honoring. May they help Westgate complete your mission, God. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. With the creation of the internet, we've been given more access to information than ever before. You know this. We're able to remain connected on a global scale. We're now able to know basically in real time how people and places are doing. We could come up with a list of a ton of great things that the internet has done for us, but we could also come up with a list of bad things that the internet has brought with it. And one of those bad things is the internet troll. Now, when I say the internet troll, I don't mean that there's one big bad troll out there online. No, really, anyone can be a troll, but you shouldn't want to be. And here's one definition of an internet troll. It's a mouthful. A troll is a person who posts inflammatory, insincere, digressive, extraneous, or off-topic messages with the intent of provoking people into displaying emotional responses or manipulating perceptions. It can also be defined as purposefully causing confusion or harm for no reason at all. And part of the phenomenon of trolling is that typically it's anonymous, but it's always online. So there's that level of distance which permits people to feel like they can say whatever they want. Things we should add that they probably would not say in person. Well, in Corinth, apparently there was a group of people who felt like Paul was trolling them. They felt like this guy, Paul, was really timid in person, but once he leaves, he writes these aggressive letters. And so Paul takes some time to address their concerns, to show them that he's not writing these letters just to evoke emotional responses or to manipulate them. No, whether Paul is in person or away, Paul's desire is consistent. It has everything to do with Jesus. In chapters 8 and 9, we have seen how Paul devoted a lot of ink to the issue of giving generously. And before those chapters, if you remember all the way back to the beginning, the first two chapters, we read about Paul's own explanation and defense for some of the actions he took, the routes that he took. For example, why he waited to go and visit the Corinthians. And after explaining himself, goes on to teach them about various things. What's interesting is that now in chapter 10, Paul again feels the need to defend himself. And there are two likely reasons why Paul does this. First, he's just finished talking about money, and Paul knows that his opposition would probably capitalize on this request, since Paul spends two whole chapters on it. His rivals could say something like, you see, Paul doesn't really care about us. He just wrote to us to ask for money. Second, although Paul defends himself earlier in the book, he now turns to directly confront his rivals the opposition, responding to objections forcefully that he has yet to answer until now. Because again, Paul spent a lot of time talking about money and making it really clear that they should give. And to some, his words could definitely be perceived as tough or stern, something which his rivals do capitalize on, as we'll see. So basically, Paul turns to his defense to address the opposition. And chapter 10 is just the start of it. 
We'll see this again in the following chapter. In our passage this morning, Paul, responding to his rivals, is clear about what his purposes are and are not. And that's important for us because I see three parts to this passage. I'm going to give you these very quickly. Uh, each part contains a contrast. <clears throat> Excuse me. So as always, I've got to give you the outline. That's just how I roll. So there's three phrases for this morning structure. Here they are. The first is verses 1 to 6. Walking like Christ, not the flesh. Walking like Christ, not the flesh. And then verses 7 to 12. Confidence in Christ, not comparison. That's 7 to 12. Confidence in Christ, not comparison. And lastly, verse 13 to 18. Commendation from Christ, not ourselves. Commendation from Christ, not ourselves. Well, look with me now at verse 1. It reads, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. So as Paul begins his defense, he starts with Jesus. It's Jesus' meekness and gentleness that guide Paul. One scholar puts it this way, Paul makes his appeal through the dynamics of Christ's gospel, which is to say, Paul, what Paul does, he does according to Christ, which is significant because his rival suggests that what Paul does, he does according to the flesh. Verse 2, I beg of you, that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. So a couple notable things here. Paul is begging them, pleading with them to change in some way so that he won't have to punish them because, as he notes, he is planning to show boldness to some. And as he goes on to explain, he has to correct them. Because they have incorrectly suggested that Paul, God's apostle, the one who used to kill Christians but now has devoted his entire life to proclaiming the gospel, that somehow that Paul is actually working according to the flesh. Now, what does walking according to the flesh mean? The flesh is typically referred to as that sinful God-opposing nature we all have. At times, it could simply refer to things that are natural, but its most common usage is to describe a negative aspect of humanity. The NIV translates Paul's words this way, people who think we live by the standards of this world. The NLT says, those who think we act from human motives. However your Bible has it, there is a deliberate contrast being made. There's the world's way of doing things, there's the flesh, the human standards, but Paul wants to be clear that he is not abiding by those rules. Turning to verses 3 through 6, you can hear that he makes this shift to speaking about warfare. And if I can boil down his reason for making the shift, I think it's Paul's attempt to show them that there are bigger fish to fry. He's not writing to them to destroy them, as he says in verse 8. The Corinthian church is not the enemy he's concerned with. He's not trying to pick a fight with the Corinthians, forcing them to do what he wants. That sort of thing is what the world does. We're not surprised when people blackmail, mock, or bully to get what they want. That's the world's way of acting, but that's not Paul's, and it's not God's. As Paul goes on, he explains that the true enemy, the primary object 
of his attack are immaterial things. Yes, there are people who oppose him, and if they don't change, then he will have to punish them. That's verse 6. But in a way, Paul initially explains that the enemy behind the enemy are arguments against God, lofty opinions against God, and thoughts against God. And arguments, opinions, and thoughts are not confined to one person. They are strongholds that necessitate divine power to demolish. And the one specific divine action that Paul includes here, which can help, which can actually deal with those things, is obedience to Christ. An obedience which Paul himself has proved to be concerned with. If you remember back to chapter 5, Paul has already said that living for Jesus is his highest concern. And read this to you. Chapter 5, verse 9, Paul says, Whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. And here again, Paul is showing that the Corinthians, he's just being consistent. His concern has always been what Christ wants him to do, even if the method or tone he chooses could fluctuate. His primary purpose is always the same, to live for Christ. And for that reason, it is important for Paul to start his defense this way, because although he doesn't say this, we can notice that to criticize Paul's ministry is to criticize Christ's ministry. And as we work our way through the rest of this passage, I'm going to continue to point this out, because Paul is so focused on Jesus that he can speak of his rivals as being foolish, that in reality, they are the ones who walk according to the flesh. So for us, it's very simple. We are called to live by Christ's standards, not the world's. To walk like Christ, not the flesh. That necessitates obedience to Christ. Let's turn to verses 7 to 12. In this next section, Paul addresses another objection while also leveling some significant criticisms against his rivals. And he starts by appealing to common sense. He says, verse 7, Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. And what's he saying? He's saying we're on the same team. You're confident that you belong to Christ. That's great. Don't forget, I belong to him too. Paul simply pointing out that they are equals when it comes to their relationship with Christ. Paul might have a specific authoritative role, but they both belong to Christ in the same way. That's how Paul starts. And from there, he moves to talk about this authoritative role, which his rivals have an issue with. Like I said earlier in verse 8, Paul is clear that his role is not for destruction, but construction. God has given Paul authority to build them up, not tear them down. But nevertheless, his rivals have objections, and apparently Paul gets wind of one. That's verse 10. Look at verse 10 with me. He says, For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Paul's got some people in mind when he writes this. In verse 2, he notes that there are some who suspect him of walking according to the flesh. And now in verse 10, he notes that there are some who have been making judgments on his methods and character. 
Now, this comment in verse 10 does pick up on an element of truth. Paul is perceived differently when he's away versus when he's in person. And verse 11 is Paul telling his his readers why. He says, What we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Basically, Paul is expressing that there are things he can do in person that don't require words. But when he's not in person, more words are required. Yet in either case, Paul is not changing. Paul is being consistent. And he doesn't stop there. Verse 12, Paul goes on the offensive too, rightly pointing out the errors of his rivals. It says, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. Going on to say that those who compare themselves with one another are actually without understanding. Now, to say they are without understanding is a kind of, is tame. That's a nice way of putting things. <laughs> they're foolish. They're ignorant. They don't have understanding. And it's foolish because to compare yourself or to measure yourself by someone else is a dangerous game. That's a dangerous game. You end up defining yourself more by what you are not than what you are. You can easily end up feeling not good enough or better than others. Moreover, you end up rooting your validation in others. And that is a fragile validation. It truly is a foolish thing. And yet, we do it. I do it. We've done it. We can stumble into thinking that if I could just perform like they can, if I could look like they do, If I could have what they have, then I'll have my confidence. Then I'll feel secure. But that's just not true. And the comparison game is never ending. It is exhausting. So we should take a cue from Paul. Let's not dare to compare. Let's not dare to compare. There's no lasting confidence to be had through comparison. Rather, let's remind ourselves that we belong to Christ. That's where confidence lies. If you belong to him, you don't need to go elsewhere looking for confidence. And as we'll see in this last section, we should only seek our validation from Jesus. That's the final section, verses 13 to 18. When he opens this last section, Paul continues to show how consistent his concern and character is. First, he notes that his boasting has borders. What Paul boasts about is outlined, but white. But, excuse me, what God has. Gotta start over. What Paul boasts about is outlined by what God assigns to Paul. But he's clear that within the allotment, within that allotment, are the Corinthians. And we know from the rest of the New Testament that Paul has devoted his life to proclaiming the gospel among Gentiles, which would include the Corinthians. And Romans, very quickly, in the middle of one of his teachings, he makes this comment. This is chapter 11, verse 13. Paul says, I am saying all this especially for you Gentiles. Why? God has appointed me as the apostle to the Gentiles. God has allotted the work of Gentile ministry to Paul. So in chapter 10, Paul, again, is just being consistent. He tells the Corinthians that he isn't someone who, when writing, is forceful, prideful, 
the boasting kind of person. Paul boasts only in what God has allotted to him, which includes his ministry in Corinth. A boasting, by the way, that isn't only about him. It's the fact that the gospel took root among the Corinthians. It's boasting that there's even a church to speak of. It's to their benefit that Paul can even boast about his God-given ministry because it's Paul who brought them the good news. That's verse 14. We were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We were the first. Before Paul, no one came to them. But Paul, being concerned about Jesus and his good news, wanting to bring it to them, he did it because that's Paul's ministry. Paul is also careful to limit his boasting because he doesn't want to boast in someone else's work or work already accomplished. In other words, Paul doesn't want to commit a sort of spiritual plagiarism, which is another way for Paul to point out that it's not about him. It's not really about Paul. His ministry is to make much of Christ, which exactly what he pivots to next. In verse 15, Paul says, Our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged, so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you. It would be another thing if there was a period in the middle of that sentence. If he said, Our hope is that your faith increases, so that our area of influence would increase period. If the purpose isn't stated, you'd be raising some questions. But Paul states his purpose. It's not about him. It's not really about his own growth. It's about the potential growth of gospel proclamation. If Paul is given any extra influence, no one should have to wonder how he's going to use it. He's going to find a way to leverage that influence to share the gospel And again, we could just take a cue from Paul. I want to be like that. I want to be like Paul. And to top it all off, Paul gives us a little more about his own thoughts on boasting. He brings it back to what he's been practicing himself, which is boasting in the Lord. And his reason for this God-focused boasting is so good. It's deeply personal. It's verse 18. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commands. I'm going to read it again. It's that good. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commands. That's a verse worth committing to memory because we can get caught up in trying to commend ourselves, trying to gain the commendation of others. We can get too focused on trying to attain the approval of others, but there's only one person you need to be focused on, the Lord. That's where approval lies. Paul's not interested in the comparison game, neither is he interested in the commendation game. He's not in it to make much of himself. Everything that Paul does, he does to receive the Lord's commendation, which again just reveals the consistency of Paul. People can question his methods and his words, but no one can question his commitment to Christ. And this commitment to Christ that Paul displays is something I want to dwell on a bit before we end. 
Towards the beginning, I noted that Paul is so focused on Jesus that to criticize his ministry is to criticize Christ's ministry. And from verses 1 to verse 18, Jesus finds regular mention. It is the meekness and gentleness of Christ that Paul appeals to them with. It is obedience to Christ that Paul is concerned with. It's belonging to Christ that Paul finds true confidence. It's the proclamation of Christ that excites Paul about potential growth. And finally, it is Christ's commendation that matters for Paul, not anyone else. So at every turn, Paul is making some reference to Jesus in his defense. So much so, I think we can understand Paul's consistent, consistent focus on Jesus as his defense. That's how focused he is. What we get in chapter 10 is an example of the Christ-centered life, where Christ is the source, the means, the goal. In chapter 9, Paul calls the Corinthians to essentially prove their commitment to the gospel by their actions. And in chapter 10, Paul's rivals question his commitment to the gospel based on his actions. And as he explains himself, Paul illustrates how his actions have been nothing but Christ-focused. People can scrutinize and question him all they like, but all they will uncover is commitment to Christ. And this position Paul takes is one all of us can take, where we focus on Jesus. And herein lies the reason for why the gospel, the good news, is so deeply personal. We don't have to be stuck in the tiresome, soul-crushing patterns of comparison, people-pleasing, or pride. When Jesus bore our sin, he gave us new hearts. He makes us new, thereby inviting us to live differently, an invitation that is available to anyone. Now, living differently is pretty broad, so let me narrow it down for you. To do so, I'm going to borrow from a pair of authors who wrote a great book together, and I feel like I talk about this book a lot, so if I have, I'm sorry. I don't think I've referenced it from the pulpit, um, but here's the first time. You'll probably hear it again. The book is called Three Big Questions That Change Every Teenager, and I have to give a shout-out to Lena Demers. I wouldn't even know about this book if she didn't recommend it to me, so thank you. The three questions of the book are, who am I, where do I belong, and what is my purpose? And the way the book is structured, it takes it questions at a time seeing how students answer each question. And there's a lot of sad, incorrect ways to answer those three questions, some of which are mentioned even in this passage. But go back and read through the chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians, and I think you'll notice Paul answers all those questions for himself in chapter 10. And importantly, the answer for each of those questions is Jesus. It's Christ who defines his purpose. It's Christ who gives him belonging, and it's Christ who defines him. Paul lives a Christ-centered life. It's a gospel-shaped life. And it's one that you and I can have as well. So what I want to leave you with is what Paul leaves us with in verse 18. How we live out a Christ-centered life has to include a commitment to Christ above all others. The commendation we seek is from him, and we shouldn't, and we should want it. Because as Paul says in verse 7, we belong to Christ. So here is what I will leave you with. 
Because you belong to Christ, seek his commendation above all others. Because you belong to Christ, seek his commendation above all others. Let's pray. God, thank you for this book. Thank you for this letter, this this letter Paul has written. There's so much that we are learning from it, so much truth in it. Thank you for this deeply personal, Christ-centered way of living that can answer some of the biggest questions we can ask in our lives, questions that our neighbors may be asking as well. We ask that you would help us have this laser focus on Jesus, so much so that this focus on Jesus would be our own defense at various times. Thank you, God, for claiming us that we belong to you. Help us to seek your commendation above all others. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.